This morning's message is a difficult one. Not because this passage is difficult to interpret, but because this is a dark passage. This passage focuses entirely on Judas Iscariot. And I know that most pastors would tell you their intent week after week is to provide encouragement and inspiration. Certainly that's how I like to approach most messages. But sometimes, sometimes, especially as we preach through books of the Bible, we come to passages that are a warning to us, a very important warning to every single one of us, and this is one of those passages. I want to read for you John 13, verses 21 through 30. It says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Well, our first point this morning is the Passover supper. Because of the importance of this particular passage, I want to share just a little bit of background that has led us up to this point. In the upper room, while they are eating the Passover supper, Jesus is preparing the hearts of his disciples for the cross. They are about to experience one of the most excruciating, agonizing events of their life when they watch their master and Lord be crucified and die. And he is helping to prepare them for the cross. Everything that happens in the upper room happens the night before the crucifixion. And so the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is preparing our hearts for the cross as we work through the Gospel of John and we come to this transition in chapter 13 as I have shared with you, the Holy Spirit is preparing all of us, all of us for the cross. As I shared with you the last two Sundays, John chapters 13 through 17 are a precious part 
of the New Testament, declaring the depth of Jesus' love for his followers. Those five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, we find Jesus loving his own and loving them to the uttermost, loving them to the very end because they need to know as he hangs on the cross that he loves them and he will always be with them. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. In chapters four, excuse me, in verses four and five of this chapter, it says, the Lord of glory rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And as I shared with you, this is the most humbling, sacrificial act of love found anywhere in all of the Bible with the exception, with the exception of the cross itself. Jesus humbles himself to the lowest possible point to show his sacrificial, eternal love for his disciples. And then last week we learned that Jesus did this to give all of us an important example that we should do as he has done. In verse 15, it says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. In verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You are to be willing, just like your Lord, just like your Savior, you and I are to be willing to do whatever it takes, even humbling ourselves to do the most menial, tedious, low task in sacrificial love for others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. But interspersed through those passages that we looked at the last two weeks, interspersed through those passages, interspersed through all of this Jesus clearly refers to his betrayer, Judas Iscariot. In verse 2, we read during supper, when the devil, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. In verse 11, it says, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. In verses 18 and 19, it says, or Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that when he was betrayed, that when Judas betrays him with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew it was going to happen. It was all part of God's sovereign plan because he wants them to always believe that he is the Messiah who he claims to be. And somehow, some way, he always has sovereign control over all circumstances. And that brings us to the passage this morning. Jesus now turns his entire attention to Judas, the son of of Simon Iscariot. In verse 21, it says, after saying these things, after saying, but the scripture will be fulfilled, after saying, but I tell you this now so that when it takes place, 
When it does take place, you may continue to believe that I am he. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The word troubled here means to be in agony of soul. He is troubled because he knows his betrayer is sitting there among them. He is troubled by what he has just said and what he is about to say. The Son of God, God in human flesh, is troubled in his soul. And he says, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, we have to believe at this particular point, the disciples were shocked. They're having a hard time understanding all of this anyway, but probably thought that the betrayer was someone outside of them. But when Jesus says, it's one of you, one of you will betray me, it had to overwhelm them. It would not just be anybody, it would be one of the twelve. It would be one of his closest followers. And we know at this point they simply don't know who it is because in verse 22, excuse me, in verse 22 it says, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They don't know who he's talking about. And so you have to believe. As they look at one another, they're wondering, who is it? And probably hoping, I hope it's not me. So in verse, verses 23 and 24, it says, One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. He goes, ask him. Ask him who it is. And it says, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now we know from the Gospel of John that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John himself. It is the Apostle John. Now, it isn't that Jesus loved John more than the other disciples, but apparently John had this, and we ought to marvel at this, this really close, intimate friendship and fellowship with Jesus. It appears that John is a very tender-hearted, loving person. Remember at the cross, Jesus looks down at John and tells him to take care of his mother Mary. And so he became known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's interesting, most commentaries believe that this is a name, a nickname that the other disciples gave to him because he had such a close friendship with Jesus. And so one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, a little bit of background here, and if some of you know this already, forgive me, but I think it bears worth repeating. In this culture, at this particular time in history, if you were to go to the home of a friend and have a meal together, you would have that meal at a very low table. It would be shaped as a U, and the host would sit at the base of the U. And in this particular case, that would be Jesus. When you would dine together, when you would share table fellowship together, when you would share a meal together, which, by the way, in the Jewish culture was one of the most intimate types of friendship and fellowship that you could have to share bread together. When they did so, they would recline on their sides 
with their feet protruding outward. So they would lean on their left elbow with their feet out, lean on their left side, and they would use their right hand to eat with. So they're all on these low-lying couches or mattresses on their left side. And that's important to understand. It appears that the Apostle John was to his right. It would be like when you're watching television and you lean on your left side and maybe eat popcorn or something while you're watching television. That's how they would be all around the table. And so Peter motions to him because he's close to Jesus and says, who is it? Ask him. Ask him. So verse 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, if he is on Jesus' right side, which we believe it was, then all he had to do was simply lean backwards, and he was right in the chest and face of Jesus. Some translations, some English translations actually have, he was leaning on his bosom or his chest. And so if he was to the right of him, he would simply lean backwards and probably whispered, who is it, Lord? Who is it? And in verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he said, it's going to be the one who I give this morsel after I have dipped it. It's common, probably everybody was dipping their morsels, but he gives it to Judas, which indicates that Judas was probably on his left side, John on his right, Judas on his left, so he can easily give it to him. Now, a question arises in which there is division among Christian in biblical commentaries. Did John and Peter at this time know it was Judas? Some say yes, they knew. They were probably the only two that understood at this point it was Judas because John had talked to Jesus and then saw him give the morsel. Others say no, they still think that none of the disciples clearly understood it was Judas at this point, because in verse 28 it says, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. So we don't know for sure whether they knew it was Judas or not at this point. But in a sense it doesn't matter because Jesus knew. Judas knew. I believe, as I mentioned the last couple of weeks, that Jesus was giving Judas opportunities. Final, loving opportunities to repent, to not do what he was planning in his heart. Something very important for us to understand. Someone had to betray Jesus in order to fulfill prophecy. But it didn't have to be Judas. Someone had to fulfill the prophecy that there would be a betrayer, but it didn't have to be Judas. But it was. And Judas is 100% culpable and responsible for the decisions that he made. So Jesus knew Judas knew exactly what was going on, and so do we. And that brings us to our second point this morning. 
Satan and Judas Iscariot. After Judas takes the morsel of bread from Jesus, we have one of the most frightening scenes found anywhere in Scripture. Verse 27 is a frightening verse. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, speaking of Judas, Satan entered into him. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now back in verse 2, it says, When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him now, it says he actually enters into him. I want to say a couple things about this. First of all, this means Satan was there. Satan was roaming around at the Passover supper. In the midst of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, telling them to follow his example, Satan's right there. Not just one of his demons, but Satan himself is there. They can't see him. But he's there. You talk about spiritual warfare. This is intense, graphic, spiritual warfare. Satan is right there. Says that Satan entered into him. Now, this does not mean, this does not mean that Satan enters into every unbeliever. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that if someone persistently, over a long period of time, clearly hears the gospel, understands it, and rejects it, and rejects it, and turns away from Jesus, he becomes a tool for Satan, and Satan can actually enter into him. That person is fully responsible for their actions, but there can potentially come a point where Satan enters in and takes over. And that is frightening. I'm not going to try to explain all of this. I'm going to let the text speak for itself. Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. I think Jesus is talking to Judas, and I think Jesus is talking to Satan. This is the time. Do what you have planned to do, but do it quickly. And in verses 28 and 29, it says, Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, be still. And again, we don't know whether this includes Peter and John. It evidently does. But they don't know why Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. They don't know why. They still don't know why. And because Judas was the keeper of the money bag, the treasurer, they thought maybe he's telling them to get some more food for the feast or maybe he's telling them to go give something to the poor. But think about it, folks. 
the other disciples so trusted Judas that they made him their treasurer. For three years, they had no idea that he was going to be the one to betray him. Judas was a false disciple, but he fooled everyone around him. And in verse 30, another frightening verse. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately, Judas, he immediately went out. He immediately goes out. He's been discovered. He knows he has to do it quickly because if he doesn't, his plan is going to fail. So he leaves the Passover supper. He goes to the Jewish religious leaders and he sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then he will go to the Garden of Gethsemane and betray the one he called Master and Lord. He will betray him with a kiss. And in a Holy Spirit-inspired, powerful sentence, little sentence, at the very end of verse 30, it says, and it was night. I believe John deliberately includes that thought. It was not only physically night, it was dark because Satan was there. It was not only physically night, but it was pitch black pitch black in the soul of Judas Iscariot. I want to say to all of us here this morning, Judas Iscariot stands as a warning to every Christian in every age of church history. He is a warning to every single one of us. For three years, for three years, Judas was a professed disciple of Jesus. He, Judas, witnessed Jesus' miracles. He was there when he healed the sick and made the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He was there when he cast out demons and rebuked demons. He was there when he caused, when he spoke to the winds and the waves and they obeyed his voice. He was there. He was involved in many of the same ministries of the, as the other disciples for three years. And yet Judas was a false disciple who never embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is frightening, that you can be so near to Jesus and yet not truly believe, yet not truly embrace him as your Savior. He fooled all of the other disciples. For three years, he talked like they talked, walked like they walked, did what they did. None of them realizing he really didn't believe. One writer said this, there are always Judases among us. There are always Judases. No, not someone who's going to send Jesus to the cross, but people who look and talk and act like us, but deep down they really don't believe. They're found in 
every Bible-believing church all around the world, including ours. Last week, I shared with you, be careful, beware of who you make your hero. Be careful, because even the best of Christians aren't always what they appear to be. Let Jesus be your hero. Let him be your example. And once again this week, I was reading, doing some extra reading, and just saw this long list of former pastors, Christian authors, Christian musicians, who once were held in high regard and have now abandoned the faith completely, no longer believe any of it. And yet they fooled everybody. They fooled us. We listened to their sermons. We read their books. We listened to their music. The popular term being used today for this is Christian de deconstruction. Christian deconstruction. Just like you construct a belief, you can deconstruct it. It means that there are those among us who deep in their hearts are wondering if it's really all true. They begin to doubt the Bible. They begin to doubt that God is who he says he is, and they begin to doubt Jesus. And eventually they come to a point where they just walk away from the whole thing. They don't believe anymore. We should not be surprised. Jesus taught us this in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The King James Version has the wheat and the tares. It is the whole point of that parable. There was a master, the Son of God, who planted wheat. And there was an enemy, who we are clearly told is the devil. And he planted weeds with the wheat. And as they grew up, you, no one could tell the difference. The wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, looked exactly alike. As they grew up together, no one could tell the difference. In fact, the farmers went to their master in the parable and says, do you want us to go pull out the weeds? And he says, no, no, no. He says, because while you're pulling out the weeds, you may pull out some of the wheat. They looked so much alike, exactly alike. He said, wait till the end of time. At the end of time, the heavenly reapers will come and they will know and they will pull out all of the weeds, bundle them together and burn them up. And then they will take the wheat and bundle it together and they will store it away in the barns. But until then, you won't be able to tell them apart. Every once in a while, I'll have someone from our church and they'll meet someone who grew up at our church or grew up at another Bible-believing church. And they'll find out that they've abandoned the faith. They no longer believe in God anymore. And they're shocked and they, and they come to me and they say, Pastor Tim, how can this be? 
must be that we're not teaching the word well enough. It must be we don't have the best Sunday school material that we need. It must be something wrong that we're doing that someone would grow up in our church or a good Bible teaching church and then would walk away from the faith. And my response is, why do you ask such a question? Oh, we can always do better. But people have been walking away from the faith for centuries. It's the lesson of Judas Iscariot. He had the best teaching in the universe. And he still didn't believe. It's the teaching of the wheat and the weeds. They look like us. They act like us. They talk like us. But deep down, they're having serious, serious doubts. And one day, they just don't believe it anymore at all. It's 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were never really one of us. And my plea to you this morning is, don't let that person be you. Don't let that person be you. It may well be this morning that there are some of you either here in the auditorium or watching by live stream and deep in your soul you're wondering. I'm wondering if I really believe it. I'm wondering if it's all true. I'll go along with it, but I, I, I just don't know. There are just too many things going on in the world today to believe there's a loving God, a caring God. How could God let this happen? How could God let that happen? And they're doubting. And they're doubting. I say to every one of us, including myself, make sure you have genuinely and sincerely repented of your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Make sure. If you have doubts in your heart, and maybe no one else knows about them, most likely they don't, I say to you, the Holy Spirit is gently, tenderly pleading with you this morning. Give up those doubts and truly trust in the only one who can save you, the greatest treasure of all, the most beautiful Savior. Trust in him alone for your salvation. In just a minute, we're going to close with the song, Just As I Am. And as you stand and sing, I want us to use this as a kind of special time of introspection for all of us. Make sure, make sure that you have trusted Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would take the warning from the life of Judas Iscariot very seriously. Help each one of us, every single one of us, to make sure of our own salvation. Help us to see the sacrifice, the love, and the tenderness of Christ. May we trust in him alone for our salvation, and may we trust in him alone for every need of our lives, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.